1 Samuel 28. This will be the first of a couple messages entitled, In Trouble at Indoor. Seventy-seven years ago this month, Europe was, like it is now, enraged in war. It was April 1945 that the Third Reich was collapsing. Allied forces were marching to Berlin from the west and Russian forces from the east. But Hitler had a close associate named Gables who wasn't worried. Gables was a believer in horoscopes. And according to him, the horoscopes had already predicted two of the great defeats that they'd had. But his horoscope said, no worries, the end of April will turn in our favor and all will be well. Hitler didn't see it that way. And the horoscopes could not hide the horror that was coming his way, and he took his own life on April 30th, 1945. The commentator Dale Ralph Davis, who has a wonderful commentary on 1 Samuel, says, Facing ruin, men will sometimes turn in their desperation to any resource that they think will give some hope, some direction. And so it was with Saul. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord, finishing out Holy Week, and there was much thought during that week about the terrible times of our Lord, the dark night that he faced, and the terrible death, the last supper he had. This is a passage which takes us now back to the beginning of Israel's kingdom, in which there was a last supper of Saul, but there would be no resurrection for him. Instead, there would be the rise of a new king. Today, we return to our series about the high drama days of the kingdom of Israel at its beginning. Uh, chapters 27 to 31, the last part of the book of 1 Samuel, are about the uh, continuing fall of Saul and the rise of David and all of the intrigue that goes with that. David has been on the run from Saul, who has been enraged with jealousy against him over the prophetic word that David is God's choice to lead the kingdom. David doesn't know where to go anymore, and in a moment of weakness, he's fled to the Philistines, feigning to be a warrior for their hire. Driven by doubt, not so much by faith, he nonetheless holds on to God's plan and seeks his help to get out of the mess he'd gotten himself in. But Saul, we'll see today, is driving himself off a spiritual cliff he wanders farther from God than he ever has before as he seeks the help of a necromancer, a medium, a witch. David will survive and thrive. Saul will fail and fall. A couple months ago, we came to the beginning of chapter 28. The first two verses really belong to the previous chapter how that David was with the Philistines and the Philistines are preparing for a big battle against Israel and they tell him, now you know you're going to need to fight with us. And then the story stops and we're left wondering, how, how is David going to get out of that? And then in verse 3, where our text begins today, the storyteller switches gears. He switches from talking about Saul, David to talking about Saul. And he even changes the time period. He flashes forward to a day before Saul dies to give us a glimpse at the how his kingdom was crumbling. Saul's 
search for unholy help at Endor ends up proving both his unworthiness and God's prophetic word. I'd like us to read the, this story now, beginning in chapter 28, verse 3. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Our study will take us through half of it, but I want us to get a feel for the fullness of it. Verse 3, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered, all, uh, gathered Israel together, and they encamped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Behold, you, you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. How are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, for what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me, and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done according as he has spoken through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Then Saul immediately fell full length on the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. 
The woman came to Saul and said, saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also, please listen to the voice of your maidservant. And let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I, I will not eat. However, his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to them. So he rose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly slaughtered it, and she took flour, kneaded it, baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Saul searches for unholy help at Endor, and he ends up proving both his unworthiness and God's prophetic word. This story breaks into three parts. It starts with a frightening mess at Jezreel. Background information is given to us. And then there's the heart of the story, that foreboding message at Endor by Samuel. And it ends with a farewell meal, Saul's Last Supper. Well, come with me to the first of these portions, verses 3 to 6. The frightening mess at Jezreel. There is important background information given in these four verses. It tells us about all sorts of things that are at play, including the spiritual terrain, what was happening in the land spiritually. And the first thing we see is that there is no more Samuel. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. This is something that had happened chapters earlier. Chapter 25 begins by telling us about the, the timing of Samuel's death. It's mentioned here again for two reasons. One, it shows us how an important spiritual influence from the land was gone. And of course, it sets the stage for the sad scene that's about to come. There's no more Samuel, and there's supposed to be no more mediums as well. Verse 3 continues, And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. Now this is one of the good things that Saul had done in his realm, to get rid of mediums. This is a word that refers to those who use some sort of an instrument to communicate with the spirit realm. Uh, don't, don't think of them as, as witches uh, in the medieval or modern sense. These are not uh, old hags hovering over simmering pots, casting spells on people. Toil, toil, and trouble, and that kind of thing. Um, even the word medium might be misleading because of the way that gets used in television and, and the things. These are not, she's not holding a modern seance. But they are people who use different means and devices and rituals to communicate with the spirit realm. And then there's spiritists, which is a synonym for this. Literally, it means knowing ones people who claim to have special knowledge, people who claim that they have familiarity with spirits, that there are certain spirits they are familiar with who will communicate to them. They attempted to interact with the dead. What probably happened was that they interacted with fallen spirits, demons and the like, who mimicked the dead. Saul had gotten rid of them, at least by means of law, and that was a good thing. It was one of the few things in which he enforced the law of God through Moses. Uh, there's a number of verses in the law of Moses that prohibit that, this kind of spiritist activity. I'll, I'll read two of them to you. Leviticus 19, verse 31. 
do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And in the next chapter, Leviticus 20, verse 27, Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Israel prohibited these things at its best times, and yet throughout the other nations of the ancient Near East, they were extremely common. It was the norm for kings to go to mediums and spiritists to seek out advice. Uh, it was common for average people to seek out uh, um, contact with dead relatives. And, you know, this sort of thing with a different flavor and a different shape is growing more and more common within the modern world. As God's, the knowledge of God has eclipsed in our society and our culture, people are looking for something else, something that perhaps they think they can control. Saul had gotten rid of them. Well, he obviously hadn't gotten rid of all of them. There's one here in this story. But as a matter of policy, he had reinforced the law of Moses. There's a couple bits of irony attached to this verse. First is that Saul was known for his policy, and yet he was also known for other kinds of sin that were likened to this sin. Do you remember when it was that Saul first learned that God was done with him, that he would not have a dynasty, that God was raising up someone else? It's 1 Samuel 15. It's when uh, Saul had fought against the Amalekites, and he was supposed to eliminate them, and he doesn't. He was supposed to wait for Samuel for a sacrifice, and he doesn't. And he's committing these high-handed sins against God. And Samuel says to him, in fact, turn back to chapter 15, verse 22. It's important to see this. Chapter 15, verse 22. 15, verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Maybe Saul had already enacted his ban on mediums and soothsayers. But Samuel tells them the kind of high-handed rebellion you're engaged in is no better. That's ironic. Saul's rebellion was a kind of spiritual wizardry. High-handed sins against God are just a sophisticated kind of devilish behavior. Some people might pride themselves, think, well, at least I'm not a devil worshiper. At least I'm not a this or a that. And they think of the worst category of sins they can. But really, there are ways in which people who claim to, to know God can engage in things that are detestable before the Lord. What we need is a true knowledge of God, not the sort of lip service that Saul was engaged in. There's another irony here. And that Saul was about to violate his own law by consulting a medium. The word for divination back in chapter 15 that we just saw is the word kesem. And he'll say to this woman here in chapter 28, verse 8, consult for me, and it's the same word, divine for me, a spirit. 
Saul is both a lawmaker and a lawbreaker. Saul's knowledge of God's law is making his breaking of it all the more heartbreaking and inexcusable. It's a terrible thing. Hypocrisy, this claiming to be one thing and doing the exact opposite is such a disgusting thing in the eyes of God. Now hear me, and I'm not talking about people who struggle with consistency. I'm not talking about battling against sin and not always winning. We're, we're talking about c- putting up a facade to be one thing and actually living another. That's Saul. And in this chapter, his mask is coming off. So this is part of the background. This is uh, the deep background to the frightening mess at Jezreel. And at Jezreel in particular, there's a military crisis that's brewing, and we see it in chapter 28, verse 4. And what's happened is that Philistines have entered the north. So we're told, verse 4, the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped in Shunem. Throughout the book of 1 Samuel, the Philistines have been a big problem. In the, in the opening chapters, the Philistines are menacing people. They, they invade Israelite lands. They steal the Ark of the Covenant. They kill the two sons of the high priest. And other books tell us that they destroyed the tabernacle at Shiloh. In Saul's early days, we find out that the Philistines had a military outpost right in the high country of Judah. And they're not just down on the plain. They're up in the high country. David famously routs the Philistines and kills Goliath. Saul has been chasing David and gets stopped at least one time because the Philistines have invaded. He has to go deal with them. And concurrent with this story is the previous chapter where David is pretending to be an ally of the Philistines. They they are all over the pages of this book. And now they have made a new move. They have moved up into the north, into Shunem. Now, this, er, this village of Shunem is in, uh, on the eastern side of a very large valley, the Jezreel Valley. And the Philistines have moved 75 miles north from where they were down in Gath uh, in the southwest, 50 miles north of Saul's capital in Gibeah. Shunem sits in the middle of the eastern side of the valley. A few miles north is majestic Mount Tabor. A few miles south is Mount Gilboa, where the Israelites will be. And in between those is the hill of Moreh, and that is where Shunem is. The Philistines have situated themselves on a little pass to control movements. This is a very important route for trade, military movements. The Philistines want control of this spot. If they control this spot, they, 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 they rule the caravan routes and get all sorts of money and taxation from that, and they split Israel in two. Israel it's got some shaky defense. Uh, they situate themselves a little bit south of there, five miles south on Mount Gilboa. Um, this is a place where the Lord had brought Isra- victory to Israel before, where God defeated the chariots of Sisera. This is near where Elijah will defeat the 450 prophets of Baal, but for Saul, this will be a place of defeat. Gilboa is right on the edge, the southern edge of the valley. It's sort of safe, but they cannot win a war against the Philistines out in the valley. The Philistines have uh, brass weaponry. They have um, chariots. The Israelites do not. Unless the Lord do something, they cannot win this. And Saul cannot cope with what he sees. By the way, this is the view that Paul, Saul would have had 
as he looked from his vantage point over to uh, Shunem, and there he would see the Philistine host stretched out in the mouth of that valley. Saul cannot cope with what he sees. So now we have a couple of background verses about the king's lack. And the first thing that we see him lacking is kingly courage in verse 5. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. The same expressions used of Saul here, here at the end of the book, were used of Eli at the beginning of the book. Eli, when he hears the word that his boys have lost the Ark of the Covenant and his boys have been killed, he trembles in fear. Military historians have said that Israel was in a bad spot. Uh, they, uh, but, you know, God had done amazing things with Israel. I mean, look what God did with David. The, the Philistines were going to run over Israel, but David w- rose up. But, you know, Saul is no David. There are no more five smooth stones for him. Years of living without faith have left him with nothing but fear. You know, and and that's a sad reality, is that some folks live their whole life away from the Lord, and then they come to a spot where they realize they're at an end, and they're just left with fear, and they don't even know how to believe anymore. But for grace, to change our hearts, to open them up, we're left like Saul. No kingly courage. And in addition to that, verse 6, he has no divine insight. Verse 6 reads, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by urim or by prophets. There's a little pun in this verse. The name Saul, in Hebrew, it's pronounced Shaul. Shaul. And the word inquired is Shaal. Shaul, Shaald of the Lord but he didn't hear a thing. His name means asking one. (laughs) So the one who asks, ironically, doesn't get any answers. His name doesn't matter. He's lost touch with God. You know, it doesn't matter if your name is Peter, Paul, Mary, Martha, Joshua, or even Jesus. You know, if you don't know the Lord, (laughs) it doesn't do any good. It won't help you one bit if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Kings of the ancient Near East almost always would make some kind of consultation, either with a priest or a shaman, about what they ought to do. You know, do we invade at night? Do we camp here? Saul, though, at least he knows to seek the one true God, but he gets nothing, nothing. Samuel had warned him, had warned the nation back in chapter 8, that if you walk away from me, It doesn't matter if you've got a king. The Lord's not going to listen to you. Chapter 8, verse 18. You will cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And here's Saul, the king himself, and he's not getting any answers. He has closed himself off to the word of God. You know, and it's it's so sad because in the days of this book, God had been speaking more. When Samuel was a little boy, and brought to live at the tabernacle. One of the things we're told in chapter 3, verse 1, was that the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. But then God began speaking to Samuel. 
and there was an explosion of revelation, and there were prophets that Samuel was, was tutoring as well. And so here's this time of new revelation and a, a, a kingdom plan that God is uh, starting up, and Saul is closed off to it all. In fact, we're told that the last time Samuel and Saul had an audience, chapter 15, verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And it didn't matter what tri- type of communication Saul tried. I mean, he, he was, he's waiting around for a dream or for somebody to get a dream. Nothing. There are no prophets who want to talk to him anymore. He's, he's killed most of the priests. The prophets don't want to be around him. There's no more urim. That's the, the special uh, device that the high priest held within his vestments, within his ephod. Saul had killed almost all of the priests, and the surviving priest took the ephod and went to David. So the Urim is with David. There was no insight to get. Maybe you wonder, well, how is it that he's trying to get a word from God? He's trying to get in touch with the Lord, but the Lord won't listen. I mean, didn't Jesus say, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock it will be opened to you? Of course he did. Didn't Deuteronomy 4.29 say, You will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Yes, that's a precious promise. But the context of those promises is that they are coming from people who are repentant, who are open-hearted to the Lord, not closed-hearted. Saul wants a word from God so he can manipulate outcomes, not so he can submit to his will. God's will for Saul is to give up the throne. That's the last thing Saul wants to do. All of this is so different from David, who in the chapters before is getting more and more knowledge from God. Saul had hardened his heart, and that in turn was hardening his situation. You know, and the same kind of thing happens today when people close up their hearts to the the fullness of revelation that is in Jesus Christ. You really want to know God. You don't don't need to be seeking dreams or prophets. You need Christ. You need a heart that's open unto Him. And if you close your heart to Christ, there is no comforting word of God to you. But in Christ, everything is yes and amen. And the promises of God are made available to you in Him. But if you want to come to Christ, you must give yourself to Him. You cannot be your own king. So all of this is the frightening mess at Jezreel. All of this is background. The story, the messy story, now begins in verse 7. And it is a foreboding message at Endor. It starts off with an unholy search in verses 7 to 11, this illicit quest that Saul makes. And Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Now, now what a shock this is after verse 3. Yay, Saul got rid of them. Boo, what's Saul doing here? He could have done worse, I guess. He could have gone to a prophet of Baal. But what he's trying to do is no less pagan. Seek for me a woman who is a medium. The the Hebrew text suggested something like, find me a ghost wife, a ghost mistress, a woman who is familiar with spirits, 
so friendly to them that they come when she calls. The Hebrew word for medium is actually, seems to be related to a word for a pit. A, uh, sometimes there would be in the ground some sort of a natural crevice that people believed were portals to the supernatural realm, and they would sort of uh, uh, exploit that. They'd build a little shrine over it, and over that pit, the medium would whisper and mutter and, uh, and, and drop things, uh, drinks and food down into the pit to attract the spirits. In fact, the name indoor, this location where they are, I don't know if you can see it, but that's just north of Shunem. You see that? So to get there, Saul has to cross enemy lines. It's risky, but he's desperate. It's a place in the, in the valley there that in the days of Joshua, the Israelites never really controlled, which suggests that there were some Canaanite influences there that endured for a long time. Saul is searching for something from God, but he's seeking it on his own terms. John Woodhouse said, Here indeed is a man who had found himself, as Paul said, having no hope and without God in the world. Saul disguises himself to get across enemy lines. Verse 8, he disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Puts on an unroyal disguise to protect himself from attack and maybe even from shame and also to fool the medium. There were a couple other stories in the Old Testament where Hebrew kings disguised themselves and it always, always ends bad. Ahab tries it. That undoes him. Josiah does it. Leads to his death. None of us can hide from God, you know. We can wear all kinds of masks and outfits, literal and metaphorical. Uh, you can't hide from him. You know, this is the third time the book of Samuel talks about something happening to Saul's clothes. There was a story back in chapter 18 when he was chasing Saul, and, uh, chasing David, and David was hiding with Samuel. And before David could get there, a spirit comes over him and his men, and they fall down on the ground in a frenzy and rips off his royal robes. Then there's another story, the two kings in the cave, chapter 19, where David comes up behind Saul and cuts off a corner of his royal robe. There's evidence that he could have killed him, but he didn't. And now here's another time where Saul's royal robes are off. It's a little foreshadowing that the royal realm is about to fall. Within 48 hours of this story, the Philistines will strip his dead body. But now, at this point, he's hoping to gain some advantage, and he says to the medium, in the remainder of the verse, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me one whom I shall name you. Saul, the client, makes his request. Literally, use the divination for me with the ritual pit and bring up for me the one whom I say to you. Here it is, Saul at his lowest point. The author of 
First Chronicles describes it this way, First Chronicles 10, 13 to 14. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. Sinful negotiations began in verses uh, 9 to 11. By the way, there's a, that little tiny hill. You see where the tree is? That's the remains of Endor. Somewhere around that spot is where, David, where Saul met this medium. Saul enters into sinful negotiations in verses 9, 10, and 11. Uh, the woman starts it off. The woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul's done. I always cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? I don't know if she has any inkling at this point who Saul is, but she's uneasy, you know. Um, he's got people with him. That's unusual. And this is all illegal stuff. And maybe she's trying to say, you know, I don't really do that anymore. Um, She's uneasy, but not uneasy enough to be repentant. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of folks who are li that way in life, aren't they? They're uneasy about their sin, but not so much to turn actually to the Lord. She's worried that this could end badly. I mean, you know this is illegal, right? Are you going to endanger me? Are you going to turn me in? Two men are with them. That's enough witnesses under Israelite law to be convicted. She's even a little punny with them. The word spiritists means knowers. It says, you know Saul, that Saul has outlawed the knowers, don't you? But Saul vowed to her, verse 10, by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. What a, what a sacrilegious assurance. You're, bringing, you're trying to bring God into this devilish mess? His response is repulsive. He vows in God's name not to let harm come to her, yet it's in God's name that she should have been cut off. This is the last time Saul's going to use God's name in the stories. And, and when he does it, he makes a sinful oath to protect a sinful act. He's going to keep this oath, too. But in so doing, he will break the covenant with God. Amazing how God's name gets used for all kinds of outlandish things. Uh, I was trying to think of examples, and their name is Legion. I mean, it's, it's all over the place, and some are worse than others. But here's one that I came across a couple weeks ago, and this is not from someone involved in witchcraft, but um, there's, a, there's a famous uh, liberal pastor, and I mean theologically liberal, who's also a politician, and he posted a tweet right before Easter and it said, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. No. No, no. In the name of God, stop that. And don't use God's name and Christ's name to spread these kind of damnable heresies. Saul is repugnant in this false assurance using God, though. You can trust me. God's my witness. Yes, he is your witness, Saul. He sees what you're doing. Verse 11, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. 
Ah, so there's the one he's after. Samuel, not just some spirit to give him some insight. Samuel, somehow silly Saul thinks this is going to end well. Calling up Samuel, who in the last conversation they had, condemned divination. What a foolish request. So this unholy search then results in a horrifying sight in verses 12 to 14. It begins with surprising revelations in the 12th verse. This verse is full of surprises. Uh, is there some sense that the dramatic sights and sounds that she witnesses are due to the fact that he's a king? You know, only, only a king could get a response like this, and so maybe that's how she knows that he is the king. We don't know. Maybe the spirit, as he comes to her, says Saul's name, but what she sees first is Samuel, an unfamiliar spirit. Now, she doesn't know it's Samuel at this point. The, the author does. It says she saw Samuel, and she is terrified. When the woman saw Samuel, she's someone who's been in contact with spirits that she's familiar with. She's not familiar with this one. Perhaps she interacts with a particular demon who would imitate the dead for her. But everything is different about this encounter. And so we have shocked the unwell medium. She cried out with a loud voice. This is not the normal reaction. The book of uh, Isaiah warns against using mediums and spiritists and said that they would, they would mutter and chirp, speak in low tones to draw up the spirits. And we get an, ah, <laughs> that's not what you're supposed to say, Miss Medium. She lets out a shriek, and that leads to another revelation of Saul, the uncovered king, when the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. She quickly pieces things together. She sees Samuel, knows this is Saul. Maybe, again, the spirit of Samuel is speaking Saul's name, beginning to even utter the things that he'll say to Saul in a few moments. She's worried not just about the spirit she sees, but also the legal trouble she might be in now. She has had frightening success. So Saul gives her some legal assurance in verse 13. The king said to her, do not be afraid. And, and what he means is, I'm not going to turn you in. Isn't it weird, though, this man who's been so full of fear in this story is now telling someone, oh, don't you be afraid. Before it's all done, he will be terrified again. The only fear he can relieve is the fear of the law, though. He seems to be reassuring her he's not going to turn her in. But Saul has other things to fear, what God will do. And then the verse ends, and the next one, with identity confirmation. What do you see? He asks her. So we're to understand from this that... Uh, the woman sees and hears everything. At first, Saul can see nothing, but perhaps he'll hear in the verses that follow. But at this point, he's asking her, what do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming out of the earth. She describes Samuel as an Elohim, a word that's usually translated God or gods, but this word is not limited to 
supreme beings like God, but can refer to spirits of different kinds. It can even refer to powerful men. The, the word Elohim, the root of that, ale, is a word that means power. And often that's referred, reserved for the ultimate power, which is God, but it can be used for lesser powers too. He's coming up out of the earth, suggesting that he is in Sheol, the realm of the dead. I think this, is, this story is perhaps evidence for what in theology we call the compartmental theory. That is, that in the Old Testament times, that the dead went down into Sheol, and where there were different compartments. There was the place of paradise, where the righteous were, and there was the place where the damned were. Jesus, I think, alludes to this in the Gospel, when Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, but the, those who are damned are on the other side of him until Jesus empties out Sheol and takes the righteous to heaven. Uh, Saul, though, says to her in verse 14, what is his form? What's he look like? She said, he's an old man coming up. He's wrapped in a robe, and Saul knew it was Samuel. He bowed his face to the ground and did homage. A distinguished older man wearing his official priestly robe. Samuel's robe, we talked about Saul's clothes in the book. Samuel's clothes have been important in the book. Remember when he was a little boy and taken to the tabernacle? His mother would visit him every year, and every year she brought him a new robe. Remember the last time Saul and Samuel met? Chapter 15, Samuel announced the prophecy, God has done with you. He's going to give the kingdom to a man of his own choosing. And as he's walking away, Saul grabs his robe from the back to try to stop him and rips his robe. And Samuel uses that as a prophetic opportunity and says, so the kingdom will be torn from you. I wonder if when Saul hears about the robe, if he's wanting to know if it's still torn. Saul is convinced from what she says, it's Samuel. This is an amazing thing that's happened, by the way. Don't, don't think of this as something normal. Don't ask me or Pastor Red or Pastor Ball to try to do this for you. This is not a biblical thing that Saul is doing. The medium has no power over this situation. God is overruling what she normally does and allowing something very unusual. And I think we need to be careful not to read too much into this story. Uh, this, this doesn't tell us what we look like in heaven, necessarily. It doesn't mean that whatever state you're in, however old or young, that's what you'll look like in heaven. It doesn't mean the last clothes you wore here on earth, that's what you're going to wear in heaven, right? Uh, it, it certainly doesn't mean it's okay for us to try to talk with the dead. Whatever the medium is trying to do, this is, what not, this is not what normally happens. God has done something. In fact, I can't help but think about Samuel's mother, Hannah. She made a prayer in the beginning of the book. In chapter 2, verse 6, she says, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. <laughs> now she's talking about life and death and resurrection, but here in a lesser way, here's someone who's gone down to Sheol and has come up, and it's of the Lord's doing. And what follows, which we'll look at next week, is a haunting prophecy. Not only 
Well, Samuel will reiterate everything he had said to Saul before, but he gives him another insight. Oh, Saul wanted insight. He gets one, and the insight is, you're dead. Tomorrow you will be with me, but not in paradise. You'll be with me in the realm of the dead. And then that leads to a strange and unfriendly farewell meal. Saul's Last Supper. Saul's search for unholy help at Endor ends up proving his unworthiness. If there was any doubt whether or not Saul should have another chance or you know, maybe there was some other role for him, that's gone. And his doing all this just reinforces the prophetic word. It's the first time that Saul has bowed himself down to anybody in the book except God. Isn't it ironic? He's bowing down to a dead man. Finally, this man has been brought to his knees. But it's not in repentance and faith. You know, it, it is so much better to bow our knees in faith to God than to have to do it under the force of final punishment. The Apostle Paul said in... Uh, in the book of Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every single one. Whether they believe now or not, in the end, everyone will know absolutely who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is so much better to bow the knee now in faith. Either we will do it now by faith or we will do it in fear at the judgment and so I leave you with the words of some of the prophets of Israel who call on those who have not yet uh, forever turned away from the Lord. Isaiah says in his 55th chapter, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you are outside of the faith, I call on you to come to King Jesus and bend the knee to Him and trust in Him alone, not your own plans and your own insights and your own methods to get things done, to make things right with God, to fulfill your plan and purpose. No, come to Christ on His terms and trust in David's greatest son. Father, we thank you for the time we've had in this story. It is sobering and shocking. It is sad. We don't want to be those who miss the point. We don't want you to be just entertained or even educated by this story. We wish to be transformed. So may we be those who are sensitive to your word that are open-hearted to what you have said and promised, to your kingdom plan revealed most fully in Jesus, your Son. It's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen.